welcome to Tech Law Talks. I am Anthony Diana, a member of Reed Smith's Tech and Data Group. In each episode of this podcast, we will discuss cutting edge issues on technology, data, and the law. We will provide practical observations on a wide variety of technology and data topics to give you quick and actionable tips to address the issues you are dealing with every day. Well, welcome to this episode of Reed Smith Tech Law Talks with myself, Hagen Rook, in Singapore, and So and Panchamir in Dubai. And today we have the immense pleasure of welcoming as a guest Samson Leo, who is co-founder and chief legal officer of FAS, a very, very well-known payment services, crypto digital assets, Web3 lending and borrowing firm based here in Singapore with activities uh, across the region, but mainly I think in Singapore and, and in Indonesia. And very relevantly for this episode, FAS is also, I think via its StraightX arm, the issuer of two types of stablecoin, XSGD, which is a Singapore dollar denominated stablecoin, and XIDR, which is an Indonesian rupiah denominated stablecoin. Very, very interesting. Maybe I'll hand it over to you, Samson. Can you maybe give us a few words of, of introduction? Great, Hagen. Thank you. I, I think you've done great justice to the to my introduction. It's super comprehensive. That's exactly the space that we are in. We are a fintech company uh, in payments and lending. And specifically for today, I'm really happy to be here, Hagen. Thanks for inviting me for us to have a discussion about stable coins, right? And that's a business that as you have pointed out, that's a business that we we are in. We are an issuer of the XSGD stablecoin and the XIDR stablecoin. So first of all, it's so lovely to have you here, Samson, and thanks for agreeing to do this, um, even though we sent the email out a little bit last minute, but not yeah. too last minute, I hope. We were very eager to have someone come in to kind of talk to us a little bit more about, you know, why bother with stablecoins today, especially as we hear all this chatter about CBDCs and essentially, mm. you know, mm. one kind of being equivalent to the other. So for those listening, a stablecoin in the simplest terms is a digital token that is backed one to one with either a currency, a fiat currency, or maybe one or two fiat currencies, essentially a token that purports to maintain a stable value. Uh, so it doesn't suffer from the same kind of volatility that perhaps something like Bitcoin or Ethereum might endure, despite them being some of the more stable tokens in the market today. So the question then becomes is, we develop stable coins as sort of like a way to increase trust in using digital tokens. And mm -hmm. we would love to hear from you sitting in your position as CLO and co-founder of FAS, as well as your other roles. how why did you guys decide to issue a stablecoin and what are the use cases of it that you guys have found so far mm. all right thanks so um so for the for the question of why did we did we start this i think it's it's almost like why did we start a payments company back in back in 2014 right uh specifically for the stablecoin a lot of the customers that we are serving uh have been in the web3 space so some of those customers whom we serve with our payment solutions, they may be cryptocurrency exchanges, right? So we help them collect the SING dollars for their customers and their customers then trade with them to buy Bitcoins and Ethereum. So 
back in around 2019, 2020, the, the payment experience for these um, enterprise customers has been that they would have to integrate our payment APIs. I would like to say that we are already a step above the banks in the sense that we had those open APIs for our enterprise customers to use prior to the banks launching and opening their APIs. But we wanted to go one step further. So the challenge we faced with a lot of our enterprise customers was that they took a very long time to integrate the APIs. Some of them required external developer help. Some of them might not have the capability or the competency or the the capacity to integrate these payment APIs uh, into their payment systems. So then became the challenge of we're trying to set out to solve how do we help our enterprise customers get up to speed faster, right? How do we help them collect payments faster? And so we asked ourselves, if they're already on the Web3 space, right? If they're already listing ERC20 tokens as business as usual, they're already listing tokens and listing multiple currency pairs, then our, our hypothesis was that what if we took our fast e-money and just tokenized it, put it onto the blockchain? That's essentially what XSGD is, right? It's a tokenized record of the amount of balance that we hold for our merchant customers. And so when we launched it in 2020, we were really caught off guard by the amount of um, positive reception that our customers had. I think in the first year, we transacted almost $2 billion worth of XSGD on chain. How's it going right now? I, I believe the last figure to date, like from inception until now, is like closer to 6 or $7 billion on chain transactions. So mm-hmm. I think it's really about trying to find where the problem is and then offering our payment product in line with what the customers need today. And our customers being the enterprise businesses who want to have have a way of transacting and a way of collecting payments on the blockchain, I think it just just makes perfect sense. In a sense, it's like getting all the benefits of speed and transaction volume that the blockchain offers without necessarily having to play with the volatility that comes with holding on to these tokens for too long. Yeah, definitely. That, that will be definitely from their consumer's point of view. Uh, mm-hmm. From our point of view, it will be all about how do we get businesses up to speed faster using our payment mm-hmm. solutions, right? If I talked about integrating APIs, I think I probably lost like half the room. And then we talk about uh, we didn't technical do integration. Yeah, probably like 90% <laughs> of the room will be like, um, okay, next. So, so I think that was really the problem we were trying to solve. Uh, how do we give our our business customers an easier, faster way of integrating payments in a way that they already know how to do so for these mm-hmm. group of customers who happen to be on the Web3 space. So, so um, that's the birth of XSGD. I don't think you lost yeah. anybody who uh, was genuinely interested because there are so many people now who are trying to get into the payment space because it's, it's genuinely an area that's ripe for innovation more yeah. so than most financial systems. And there's always this question that comes up. Uh, we recently had it with a representative from a regulator that I won't mention who literally just said, but why? Why can't you just send fiat? Then we won't have to go mm. through all of this. Yes. And the answer was, yes. 
because we wanted to be better. It's not because of some kind of fashion statement to you. Yes. There's actually a technological yes. reason behind it. So I think that was extremely well put. And I guess the next question that naturally flows from that being who you're talking to right now between Hagen and me is the need to, or the increasing discussions around finding a way to regulate stable coins more so, or perhaps differently than you would other cryptocurrency. So I will leave it to Hagen to talk a little bit about the MES's recent consultation paper on the topic. We'll come to that. I mean, I think as a as an elegant segue, I'd just like to pick up very quickly on something that uh, Samson said, which was very interesting, which was, you know, some of Faz, Faz's uh, at the time, I guess you were you were branded XFAS. XFAS customers, enterprise customers were looking for an alternative effectively to fiat because they were already using, you know, the, the e-money that, that XFAS was issuing. And of course, you know, this is where the, the, everything dovetails into the regulatory discussion. For a long time, stablecoins were really indistinguishable from e-money. And certainly in Singapore and in many other parts of the world, there was a lot of speculation as to, you know, whether stablecoins should be treated as e-money or whether they should be treated as some other type of asset. And so much so that, you know, I think everyone just assumed in Singapore for the longest time that stablecoins are e-money until the regulator clarified yeah. that actually they should be treated as our local version of virtual assets, which uh, we call digital payment tokens in, in Singapore. And so the Singapore regulator separately regulates certain digital payment token or DPT services. And I understand that that FAS, you know, correspondingly has, has had to pivot also with its regulatory operating model. Samson, before I move on to the, the, the more recent kind of more bespoke stablecoin regulation that the, the MAS uh, has introduced or is in, in the process of phasing in, do you have any sort of thoughts or comments on the the sort of the road that you had to follow from a regulatory perspective and you know whether that was easy or difficult as a stablecoin issuer in in Singapore yes hagen it's been a very long journey uh, from the start when we in 2019 when we first approached mes with this idea of a tokenized e money right basically putting your excess balance onto a blockchain we looked at the entire um, human services act at that point in time and in our analysis, it was e-money. And I think this was also the prevailing view, the industry view amongst the law firms, amongst the industry players, that it kind of fit in nicely with the definition of e-money. And MES also then recognized this in the FAQ, where they had a FAQ on digital payment tokens. And all the way up to the point of like March 2022, in the the question in in the FAQ, I think MES kind of did take the view that a stablecoin could be regulated as an e-money or regulated as a debenture under the Securities and Futures Act. I think it was really only around the point of 2022, the early part of 2022, where MES's policy intention might have changed, where they wanted to regulate stablecoins separately, perhaps because of the unique nature of the blockchain technology. 
Now, of course, this puts the regulator kind of in a spot because we know the regulators around the world generally take a very technology agnostic method of regulating uh, instruments. And so to regulate stablecoin just purely because it is on the distributed ledger, it's difficult, right? I think, however, MES does recognize that the, the technology does in change some characteristics from what we would traditionally view as a e-money system. So, well, I guess the lesser of two evils is, is, is now where they're trying to embark on a more specialized regulations that's really just targeting stablecoins. Yeah, agreed. I think some of the MAS's thinking in very clearly categorizing stablecoins as DPTs or digital payment tokens uh, was probably also to align their treatment with the treatment of other types of virtual asset. Firstly, because if you look at the definition of a virtual asset in other jurisdictions, like Hong Kong, for example, it's very, very broad and you know potentially encompasses stable coins as well as the most liquid cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum, altcoins, utility tokens, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think, I mean, I remember at the time when stable coins were sort of generally understood to be e-money rather than DPTs, it caused huge amounts of headache trying to figure out which activities would be triggered in which parts of the flow of, say, a crypto exchange or an OTC desk, because you had all of these unintended consequences. And I think the MAS really just wanted to create a much cleaner and uniform approach by saying, okay, we'll just treat all of these tokens, including stablecoins, as DPTs. And then that makes it easier to, uh, you know, if you're an exchange or an OTC desk, for example, to just do everything under one single crypto license, rather than, um, you know, those Web3 players also having to apply for for traditional payment service licenses. I think maybe I'll I'll just talk about the uh, the new MAS proposals for the stablecoin framework. I was half tempted to go and kind of pivot to the to the UAE. Where uh, and this might uh, might melt your brain, Samson no might actually know. Um, it's no longer a consultation here. We just woke up one morning and there it was. Well, I was I was going to say in the UAE aren't aren't stable coins treated as as e money? Yeah, no. So the two major regulators you have to look at are the FSRA and the ADGM, which is the Abu Dhabi Global Market, and then you have the Dubai based regulator in VARA. So the FSRA has, in our consultations with them for other clients and you know other discussions, kind of taken the view that stablecoins fall under the definition of e-money, and therefore they don't fully fall into the virtual asset guidance and framework that the FSRA has imposed. And this whole thing kind of stems back to sort of the, the biggest regulator or the most powerful regulator in the UA, which is the central bank, that has not done much uh, so far regulating virtual assets, but has put in some specific rules for what they call payment tokens, which in effect are stablecoins. And so none of the other regulators kind of want to get into that space and they've sort of figured there's a lot of other stuff they can do. So you have a lot of payment services providers here that are struggling in a sense until they can get through the central bank regulations, which are quite unclear at this stage. Interesting. And and part of the thinking in the UAE, I, I think, is also with a view to preparing the infrastructure for a, a possible introduction of a CBDC, right? 
Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's really where it's all headed, right? Because ultimately, to me, when you look at what the point of a stablecoin was, which is to engender trust that this is not going to be volatile, this is pegged to a currency you understand and you know, and it's all one-to-one, I, I really sometimes wonder where stablecoins will continue to have value in a world where central banks are now introducing digital currencies that effectively serve the same purpose. Like, why would you want to use Tether or Circle when the U.S. Treasury is now giving you a particular token? Is sort of my my sort of my my concern behind that. Definitely, that that's also a larger question. Like, why why want yeah. commercial bank money if I've already got a CBDC? I've got a claim straight to the central bank. Why would I want to put my money in any bank where they could potentially fail and I just get my my deposit insurance, which is capped at like either 75k or 100k? I, I think the same the same questions would apply even for stable coins. That there will always be a place for commercial money and there will always be a place for government money. I, I would also add that stable coins obviously operate on chain. Whereas CBDCs, uh, as far as I can see, are mostly not proposed to operate on chain. And so to the extent that you need some kind of stable value that you can transact specifically in the Web3 space, where, you know, in the foreseeable future, I think there'll continue to be a lot of innovation. You will need to use something other than a CBDC. Just my two cents worth. We, we slightly digress. We wanted to talk about the MAS stablecoin framework. We've been kicking that can down the road. Maybe we should do that now. Um, I just think you've okay. had so many conversations about that consultation paper. You're just avoiding it because you're bored. Sort of. Sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, look, it's caused a huge amount of excitement in the industry because the MAS uh, confirmed its policy approach in, in August. So just about two months ago. And that's confirmation of the MAS's policy approach followed an October 2022 consultation paper where the MAS first proposed a Singapore stablecoin regulatory framework. Samson, do you want me to talk about it or do you, do you want to, to do a quick intro? I'm of happy course, either please, way. Please, you're, you're the expert here, Hagen. <laughs> yeah. I'm not so sure about that. Okay. All right. Well, so very broad brush outlines here. The proposal is for a bespoke framework relating to stablecoin issuance activities, because whilst we already have crypto regulatory framework in Singapore in the form of the Payment Services Act, which, as I say, governs digital payment token services like buying and selling DPTs or operating a DPT exchange, for the longest time, it was felt that there is a need for a framework that can more specifically apply to stablecoin issuance activities and then provide for certain things that are specific to those activities like maintenance of reserves, audits and attestations in relation to those reserves and and the stable value of the coin, governance requirements, etc. So the new framework is proposed to do exactly those things. There are certain types of uh, stablecoin issuer who will be eligible for that new type of regulatory status. So firstly, if you want to fall within that new framework, you have to issue at least 5 million Singapore dollars worth of value in terms of the stable coins that are in circulation. That means that you're basically on a par with what we currently call a major payment institution in terms of your transaction volume. So you have to be amongst 
some of the larger players. If you are a smaller stablecoin issuer, you're beneath that 5 million Singapore dollar threshold. You can still issue a stablecoin out of Singapore, but you will only be eligible for a DPT license, which is the current framework, and not for a specific stablecoin issuance license. And this is where we come into a, an interesting feature of the new framework, which is that it's not only a regulatory framework that is intended to address risks arising from stablecoin issuance. It's actually also, in a sense, a regulatory seal of approval and a sort of a certificate which you can then use if you are a stablecoin issuer to say, I have a MAS regulated stablecoin. And wherever this stablecoin is transacted anywhere in the world, it can be called an MAS regulated stablecoin, meaning that it meets the you know very exacting standards that the MAS has set. A few other features. So another feature is that the stablecoin, if you want to be within this new framework, has to be denominated in a G10 currency or pegged to a G10 currency. It has to be a single currency. So baskets of currencies are not supported by the framework. Algorithmic stablecoins won't fall within the framework. So it has to be a centrally collateralized and backed stablecoin. And it has to be issued in Singapore. So there was a lot of debate around, well, should we allow stablecoin issuers outside of Singapore to be licensed in Singapore if they, for example, offer their stablecoin to persons in Singapore or there's some other touch point with Singapore? But the MAS said, no, in order to properly regulate and supervise stablecoin issuers, we need them to be incorporated in Singapore. So that's another threshold requirement. Contrast that with the, with the proposed Hong Kong framework, where Hong Kong is saying, well, if you have a Hong Kong dollar denominated stablecoin you're looking to, to issue, then we will regulate that no matter where the issuer is in the world, a bit of an extraterritorial approach. So the MAS isn't taking that approach. The rest you can kind of imagine. So the rest of, of the points you need to know about the, the new framework are really just the ongoing conduct requirements. So there are requirements for the stablecoin issuer to hold assets in reserve that, that meet certain standards and, and quality requirements in terms of you know, liquidity and sort of asset class. There is a capital requirement, which I believe is either 1 million Singapore dollars base capital, 1 million Singapore dollars, or 50% of annual operating expenses, whichever is higher. There are solvency requirements, a requirement to safeguard the assets in, in a way that makes them separate or segregates them from the issuer's proprietary assets, AML and tech risk requirements, etc. So all of these things, monthly attestation requirements, audit requirements, uh, disclosure requirements. So the issuer has to essentially issue a, a sort of white paper explaining to users what the risks are attaching to the stablecoin, how the stablecoin works. And have I forgotten something? Maybe redeemability. So redeemability, stablecoin has to be capable of being redeemed within five business days if you're redeeming directly from the issuer, which sounds like a long time. I imagine that most issuers would do it more quickly. Samson, you'll, you'll tell yeah, me if definitely. that's incorrect. But um, I think that's basically it. I'll stop waffling. Samson, I would love to hear your thoughts yes. on this on this framework. Yes. So, Hagen, you are... Uh, I, I, I like that the way that you phrased it just now, right? That this is like a special badge, right? For qualifying stable coins. So in this case, a 
MES regulated stablecoin. Um, because of the way that MES has viewed stablecoins as digital payment tokens or DPTs being falling in the same class as every other crypto out there, including Bitcoins, Doggy coins, Ethereum, gas tokens, and many, many of the million other tokens out there. Because of that policy intent and that, that direction that they've already taken in 2022, you, you can start to see why they don't want to then say, okay, if you want to issue a stablecoin, you must get this license. No, I, I think MES is saying that if you, as a consumer, if you are dealing and you're going to buy DPTs or anything that we classify as DPTs, great, proceed at your own risk. Um, we have always been saying that you know uh, any kind of uh, crypto asset or uh, DPTs are volatile. You may lose everything. They may not may or may not be, have anything backing it. So I think that has always been that position. And when stablecoins went into that bucket, I think it raised a lot of eyebrows for people in our industry until Luna happened. When Terra and Luna happened, then then it went into that entire overdrive. Like, hey, isn't it supposed to be a stable coin? How could a stable coin fall off the cliff? That doesn't make sense, right? Yeah. But then that was when MES's original, I mean, the, their current policy intention, well, it's a DPT. You trade at your own risk. But yet, knowing the other jurisdictions, like what you have shared, Hagen, there's some jurisdictions kind of start viewing it like an e-money. So, Sohem, you said the UAE kind of views stablecoin more like e-money and, and it, this is exactly, the MAS had the same view like back in back before 2022. And even in the Mika, right, in the EU, where they have asset reference tokens, where there is some recognition that there is some intrinsic value or some reserve asset backing that value, right? So I think regulators around the globe are having different approaches. The one where MES has landed on is we are going to treat every stablecoin first as a DPT. So you trade at your own risk, you hold it at your own risk. However, for selected stablecoins where you are able to qualify for all these prudential requirements, you are able, the issuer is able to show how the reserve assets are being kept, uh, invested in very safe type of instruments, then, okay, we are going to give you a badge. And so for those stablecoins, those are the ones that you go to market and say, yeah, yeah, that's a stablecoin. That's almost like an e-money, that's like an e-money-ish kind of behavior. Whereas for the other kind of stablecoins, it's okay, you can continue innovating. And I think that's kind of where MES has struck that balance between allowing for innovation and giving some of the consumers that certainty of value. And for the other jurisdictions, maybe, maybe you know, they, they may be leaning more towards the, the regulatory side just because of the Luna crash and, and all the other uh, spate of uh, very unfortunate crypto incidences. See, where I think that you got to, I, I think where the line has to be drawn also is, yeah. is something that you kind of talked about already, which is yes. public perception. There's something about stable coins. Well, we know exactly what it is. Yes. It's, meant, it's in the name. It's stable. There is this perception that it should be more stable. So when you take that denomination upon yourself as a stable coin, there you engender this public reputation of, or you're you're communicating to the public that you're more reliable than all those meme coins and alt coins yeah, that are out exactly. there. That you can transact in us and you can be secure in what it is. 
And so it's interesting because Hagen sort of walked through all the requirements under the consultation paper in Singapore. The Dubai framework, which VARA introduced um, a few weeks ago, pretty much has everything has ha- that Hagen said, except classically it's cheaper. So the capital requirement for Singapore is a million Sing dollars in Dubai, it's 600,000 dirhams, which is about 225,000 Sing and 2% of amounts in circulation. So, you know, cheaper. But the difference is there's no threshold. If you are purporting to issue stable coins, you have to get regulated and you have to get the relevant approvals and go through all the requirements. The main ones being risk protection and cybersecurity protection, AML, and of course, uh, reserve assets. There's a, there's a whole section where they just go on and on about the importance of reserve assets and how what are the appropriate uh, instruments you can use to demonstrate that. And I think that that is put in place because, well, interestingly, you can't issue a stable coin that's denominated by the AED in the UAE, even if you are sitting in the UAE, which is why we <laughs> had that notification come out a few weeks ago where Islamic coin was shut down or sorry, a market notice was put out to investors saying you shouldn't trust in this. So I think that's because more of central bank stuff. But generally speaking, the UAE always takes the approach of regulate first. We want to make sure you're safe because they prioritize consumer protection as almost paramount. Whereas I've always found the MAS takes this view of like, well, if you want to go into this, kind of like we were saying, if you want to go into this, you want to transact in DPTs, that's your choice. We're not giving them anything beyond uh, that minimal approval. Yeah, well, exactly. I, I have a, a million more questions. I'm conscious that we're running over time, so maybe we should do a sequel at some point. <laughs> this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Samson, for making time uh, to join Soam and myself for this episode. It's been great fun having you on and uh, really great. appreciate all your insights. Thanks for having me here, Hagen. Next time, we'll talk about lender borrowers. You know, keep it fresh. (laughs) Great. Thanks, everyone. Tech Law Talks is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's tech and data practice, please email techlawtalks at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and reedsmith.com and our social media accounts at Reedsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reedsmith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.